gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast about the single greatest work of literature ever written in any language previously existing or yet to be invented in any corner of the universe or multiverse. That's right. It's time for us to tackle Hamlet. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 23. The rest is violence. My son, I have some shocking news. I was murdered. Murdered, I tells ya! Really? Behold, as I slept, your Uncle Claudius poured poison in my ear. Poison <laughs> most foul! So we could marry your mother and become the king! Yeah, that was quite a weekend. Now you must avenge me! Avenge me! How? I don't know. Will, can you please tell us exactly what happens in this play that uh, people probably are familiar with and may or may not know is the only piece of literature that ever needs to have been written in the world? So much blood, James. So much blood. Dare we say carnal, bloody, and unnatural acts? Axel judgments and casual slaughters, Will? So casual. So much casual slaughter. Something is already rotten in the state of Denmark when the curtain rises in Hamlet. Our play begins with gossip on the battlements of Elsinore, the seat of the recently crowned King Claudius, ascended to the throne after the sudden death of his brother and his sudden and somewhat unseemly marriage of Gertrude, his brother's widow. Soldiers posted to guard the castle discuss the worrisome military campaigns and ambitions of the young Norwegian Fortinbras, whom they suspect has designs on Denmark, but more disturbingly, a few of them also note the recent appearance of the mute ghost of their late king in full battle dress on the castle walls. One of these men, Horatio, is close friends with Hamlet, the son of the dead king, and alerts the grieving prince to this strange news and brings him to seek out the spirit. When the ghost reappears one night, it beckons Hamlin away from his friends, and then angrily reveals the truth of his demise. While he lay sleeping one day, Claudius poured poison into his ear, killing him. Claudius's hasty marriage of Gertrude solidified his claim to the throne while Hamlet was away studying in Wittenberg. The ghost demands revenge. Although Hamlet is suspicious of the ghost's intentions, he swears Horatio to secrecy and vows that he will feign madness to throw Claudius off balance and seek the truth. At court, Claudius entreats the gloomy prince to stay in Denmark rather than return to his studies. Hamlet has good reason to do so. After all, he has been wooing Ophelia, the beautiful daughter of Claudius's doddering and daft advisor Polonius, and the sister of the headstrong Laertes, a renowned fencer who has been studying himself in France. Yet Hamlet's mood, manifested in his half-clothed and wild-eyed appearance at Ophelia's door one night, sets everyone ill at ease, especially Claudius and Gertrude, who have sent for Hamlet's college buddies, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, to discern the source of his melancholy. All wall stories of the Norwegian Fortinbras's plans to cross through Denmark with his army on the way to conquer Poland spread through the court. Meanwhile, amid many double entendres and snarky asides, Hamlet and Horatio come across a company of actors, who Hamlet engages for a performance at Elsinore of a play called The Murder of Gonzago, which depicts the assassination of a king and usurpation by marriage under very similar circumstances to what the ghost alleges happened in Denmark. Hamlet asks them to add a soliloquy of his own invention into the performance and plans to watch Claudius's reaction to gauge his guilt as he springs his mousetrap. Informed by Ophelia about Hamlet's strange behavior, the meddling Polonius suspects that the prince's melancholy is rooted in love, and asks Ophelia to return Hamlet's love letters. When she interrupts Hamlet pondering revenge and the nature of mortality, he subjects her to a withering and seemingly unhinged spate of verbal abuse. At the play later that day, Claudius flees the room upon seeing the scene depicting his murder of Hamlet's father, convincing Hamlet of Claudius' guilt. This is compounded when Hamlet comes across Claudius, pleading for forgiveness and contemplating damnation in the castle's chapel. Although presented with an opportunity to take revenge, Hamlet demurs, afraid that killing his uncle while at prayer will send him to heaven rather than hell. Gertrude asks Hamlet to visit her in her chambers, with Polonius secretly spying on their conversation from behind a tapestry. Hamlet bitterly mocks his mother, accusing her of incestuous disloyalty to his dead father by marrying his uncle only two months after the king's death. 
With so much anger and derangement, egged on by an appearance of the ghost, which only he can see, that Gertrude calls for help. This leads Polonius to call out and Hamlet to stab him through the tapestry and lug his corpse away into the night. At this stage, Claudius knows that Hamlet is a clear and present danger to his rule. He asks Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to escort Hamlet to England on the pretext of helping him recover from his madness, but in fact gives them letters to the English king ordering Hamlet's execution on arrival. At the same time, Ophelia wanders the castle grounds in a madness of her own, undone by the death of her father and unmoved by Laertes' return from France. Eventually falling, or jumping, into a river and drowning herself in what all assume was suicide. Claudius tells Laertes that Hamlet killed Polonius, only to learn that Hamlet escaped from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern at sea with the help of some friendly pirates, and has returned to Denmark. This sets up the final act of the play, in which Claudius convinces Laertes to fence with Hamlet for the amusement of the court, though Claudius confides that he will supply Laertes with a sharp-tipped sword to kill his troublesome nephew. Laertes says he'll dip his blade in poison as a backup plan, while Claudius makes a backup plan to the backup plan, with a plot to poison Hamlet's wine glass at the duel. This is all a prelude to Hamlet and Horatio coming across Ophelia's funeral, where Hamlet and Laertes nearly come to blows amid the open grave. Horatio warns Hamlet that he will lose the duel, but Hamlet proceeds anyway, doing well in the match and eventually feeling the bite of Laertes' uncapped sword and swapping rapiers with him in the scuffle. Gertrude drinks the poisoned wine by accident, dying amid what could have been some light entertainment for the courtiers. Laertes, slashed with the poisoned blade as well, tells Hamlet of Claudius' treachery and dies too. Hamlet kills Claudius, avenging his father, and upon learning that Fortinbras is near, tells a stricken Horatio to offer the kingdom to the Norwegian and keep his memory alive with the story of the melancholy Dane and his revenge. Fortinbras arrives just after Hamlet dies and orders a military funeral for the dead prince. End scene. And the rest, I assume, is silence, Will. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Will, for a, a, a very able plot summary on a... I don't know if it's narratively particularly complicated, but definitely thematically and um, psychologically complex play. So, Will, I'm I'm concerned, you know, there's so much in this one that I, I feel like we're not really going to be able to do it justice. But let me ask the obvious question first, which is that this play is the big one, right? This is a play, this is a work of literature that overhangs definitely all English literature after it and probably far beyond English literature as well. And, you know, when we talk about Shakespeare, obviously, you know, Much Do I Nothing is good, Romeo and Juliet is fun, you know, there are definitely other significant tragedies but this is the one of all of them that I, I think sort of is most inescapable in its influence on other literature and also on our culture. So with all that being said, let me ask you, what do you think it is about this play that has caused it to gain such an overwhelmingly august reputation? And do you feel like that reputation is deserved? So this is, this is, as you put it, the big one. It's the big kahuna, the brass ring in English literature. No question about it. If you've seen The Lion King, you've seen the legacy of Hamlet. If you've ever used the phrase, every dog will have his day, you've used language from Hamlet. Brevity is the soul of wit. Murder most foul. It's impossible to escape the legacy of this one. So to your question, why is that? I think that there are really two main reasons. The first is the character of Hamlet, who is a almost uniquely psychologically rich character in the annals of Shakespeare, but also in the annals of, of English literature, in a way that's extremely modern, that is uh, extremely insightful and probing about aspects of the human condition that feel relevant and modern to us today, just as they must have back in the day. And then the other part of it is the language, the actual writing of this, more so than any of the plot machinations, 
is what elevates this beyond the standard revenge play to something that is uh, deeply penetrating and insightful. And, and that's what makes all of the speeches so powerful, even though they're, they're almost overdone now. It's almost impossible to approach them because we've seen it parodied so many times because they're just such part of the ether. And I'll note that while reading about this one in preparation for our session, this is the one Shakespeare play that's been continuously on the stage since it was written. There are others that fade in and fade out, but this is the one that has been continuously performed all over the world and is just a renowned classic uh, throughout modern literature and and sort of modern history. Uh, So those are my two answers. The person of Hamlet, and uh, the language that is brought to the page and its depth. It's, it's not just its poetry, but its insight into humanity and human psychology. Well, let me also add to that, Will. I, and I think we've seen this kind of increasingly over the last several plays as we've moved into essentially the middle period of Shakespeare's work, right? Where he's gotten much better at plot construction, I think, and so I, th- I think one thing that's happening in this play, to, I mean, tell me if you agree or disagree, but it feels like what's going on here is he's interested in some very fundamental psychological and thematic and I would say just more broadly human questions, but he's also married it to a form that is exciting for one. I mean, you know, who doesn't love a good revenge drama, but also is perfectly plotted both in terms of the progression of the narrative and the plot itself but also in terms of the i think the thematic unity of it right Mm -hmm. in the way that there's all these different mirrors in the play of hamlet and laertes mirror each other but also the madness of hamlet and the madness of ophelia kind of mirror each other and so i i think there is a perfect marriage of form function and theme here Mm -hmm that is true of, you know, a play like Romeo and Juliet or is true of a play like Much Do About Nothing as well. But this feels like, at least to where we've gotten in Shakespeare's work so far, this feels like the high point of that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's worth noting that, as with many stories behind Shakespeare's plays, I mean, this one is not original. There's famously the Ur-Hamlet the sort of predecessor play to this, which they're sort of disputed authorship. But the point is, this is all an adaptation of a very old legend that goes back to the 13th century or thereabouts, uh, and that was passed down and performed and rewritten over and over again. And I think Shakespeare has brought a superior ability to plotting thematic unity and characterization. And that's why this one lasts and why we don't read, you know, the predecessor versions of this. In some ways, it's actually like the unique value add that Shakespeare brings to the process is his skill as a dramatist across the full spectrum. I mean, his original inventions here are the people that he populates the play with and the words coming out of their mouths, but also tied, as you said, to a well-constructed plot with very little fat on it that leaves room for both great philosophical rumination and really exciting swordplay, conspiracy, and in the hands of the right actors, some pretty epic uh, chewing of the scenery. So I I don't want us to fall into the trap of just talking around or talking about how great it is without actually getting to what those things are. And you mentioned, Will, about how the language of this play or the famous soliloquies can feel inaccessible because they are so famous. So on that note, can we just talk a little bit about what we think the specific themes and ideas are here that are at the heart of that reputation? I mean, what is it, you know, so for instance, a passage like to be or not to be, I mean, I think the words to be or not to be are, you know, at this point so famous that it's like a joke, right? Mm -hmm. And yet when you go and you actually read the to be or not to be speech, it kind of like you understand, I, I think, why it's so famous. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more, 
and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die. To sleep. To sleep. Perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bumpkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life? But that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus, the native hue of resolution is sickly o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. So let, let's just talk about that a little bit. I mean, what is it that Shakespeare's actually getting at in this play that's making it work? Yeah, I think with a speech like that in particular, and also with many others, and we can quote from some of them, but with that speech in particular, I think what Shakespeare is grappling with is uh, feelings of despair, whether life is worth living amid great pain and emotional turbulence. Obviously, Hamlet's a really exaggerated figure, and most people are not going through the epic trauma of what goes on in Hamlet's life and what goes on in the Danish court. But there is something that Shakespeare is tapping in that speech, to be or not to be, uh, where there's a contemplation of death, there's a contemplation of, of whether action, even if action fails, is noble in the face of overwhelming odds. There's something very deep about that, and you can, I think, take it in different contexts throughout time, and people will understand it in different ways. I mean, this is something that the Stoics grappled with in ancient Roman times. This is something that would have been grappled with in Christian Europe, and it's certainly something that existentialists grappled with in the 20th century. But it's more than that. I mean, this is a very wordy and very philosophical play. It's probably the most intellectual of Shakespeare's plays, in my view, uh, the most intensely philosophical. But it's, so, it's, also, can I, can I, it's also accessible in, in a sense, too, because um, it's presented in a way that, that gets you thinking, even if you have no, no interest in those topics for a seminar discussion. So I, I want to contest this idea that it's his most intellectual play or, or that it's somehow intellectual and not emotional. And I, I, I feel like that's a little bit of a false dichotomy, but I think that is like the matrix on, on which people might think about this. And I actually have to say, Will... I feel like reading this play and like the effect of these, you know, Hamlet has several long disquisitions or soliloquies attacking, I think, the same question, the same basic question, but from another a number of different angles. And I, I feel like the question at heart here is an attempt to grapple with, you know, man as a conscious being able to consider himself and the sort of immense almost as you know, Hamlet directly says, like, in, in faculty, how like a god or something like that. And, you know, there's something here about, like, the great capability of humankind while also trying to grapple with, 
the inevitability of death, the fact that we have no idea if there's anything beyond death, if anything really has any meaning. And to me, uh, you know, those things all being presented in the aggregate when you when mixed with a lot of the other stuff that's going on in the play, and I think in particular in the what's going on with Ophelia and with the Polonius family in general, is there's a real sense of like torment and agony and sadness that underlies this whole thing and that a lot of those questions are feel like they're in response to that kind of mental distress and emotional distress. Mm -hmm. So I don't view it as just intellectual. I mean, I think these are questions that are very relevant to how we experience the world. Well, I think that's true. I'm not suggesting that it's just an intellectual exercise. I think in some ways it's about the inadequacy of reason in the world, right? The inability to arrive at answers and what you do with that after the fact. And, I mean, there's also other dimensions of it, too, which is the question of what the right response is in terms of your behavior, what is ethical, and where your duties lie, which is something that Hamlet beats himself up over, because by reason, he knows that he should avenge his father, and yet he has scruples and worries about how exactly he's going to do it. He kind of begs off when offered opportunity time and time again. So in some ways, it's actually about the inadequacy of reason, but also human nature or you know human efforts to kind of reason through problems that are so profound as to almost be insoluble in a way. Yeah, and that gets at... One thing that's interesting is it seems like at the end of the play, when Hamlet comes back from his adventure with the pirates, basically... <laughs> And, you know, has to finally face up to the end of the tragedy. It feels like he's only able to do so because in a way, at least to his own satisfaction, he has resolved the mystery, right? And in, in his answer is, I'm just going to quote the line, he says to Horatio, Not a whit. We defy augury. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Since no man hath aught of what he leaves, what is't to leave betimes? And that, I, I mean, that is like, I think, very pithy and, and short uh, a summation of like an answer to a very big question. But I think over the course of the play, he actually has torn apart and examined in like very deep detail, a lot of different aspects of this question. And so it seems like he finally arrives at a place where he sort of concludes that to do it is the only thing you can do because right. the questions are unanswerable. Well, and I think uh, there's a great, it's actually one of my favorite lines in Shakespeare, um, one of Hamlet's where he says, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will which has always struck me because it's that sort of acceptance of fate in a way that he's doing the only thing that can be done. It's a little bit deterministic, but it's also he had to go through this process and he's arrived at the sense that um, we're all sort of playing roles mm -hmm. on a stage at the end of the day. And this is a theme we'll see again in Macbeth too, I think, to some degree, where there's something, despite all of the sturm and drang and the, the struggle that Hamlet goes through, there's only one way it feels like this can end. Now, that may not actually reflect in more pedestrian situations for lots of people, but it's very interesting. I mean, it feels true from time to time in our own lives, I would say, not with questions as epic as this, but he, he goes through that and then sort of arrives at a place of acceptance with the situation that he's in and the circumstances that he has helped bring about and that obviously Claudius helped bring about. So his arrival back, there is a sense of, um, even when Horatio tells him, you're going to lose this duel, <laughs> it's not going to turn out well. Hamlet sort of pushes him aside and goes forward with it. I mean, Hamlet's obviously very confident in his own fencing abilities, as he says, and he does quite well, but it's also worth sort of seeing that as a moment of Hamlet accepting his fate and accepting sort of the situation as it has unfolded. I mean, yeah, it, and that's that's a profound it, thing in its own way. The way it all pans out at the end is, I, I think it's easy to feel like, well, why is it now happening? Why is it only now that it's happening? And I think the key 
in terms of the resolution of the plot, is in that the readiness is all statement of Hamlet's, right? Mm -hmm. Where this may not have been the moment that he chose or was expecting for it to come to a head, but when the moment presents itself, he knows Mm -hmm. that this is the moment that it will come to the head, right? It, It sort of reflects, I think there's a lot of things in life that we attribute to luck or things happening at the right time. Mm -hmm. And there's a, you know, relatively well-known, like commonplace saying of luck is preparation meets opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? And I think Hamlet has been preparing himself to take his revenge. And he's gone through a long process. And I think, honestly, a lot of the drama of the play is him preparing himself and now he's ready, and now the opportunity has presented himself. And it's only once he's gone through that whole process that it can actually happen. Yeah, and in a way, it's it's interesting because I think you can read some of these passages and see them as discursive and circling endlessly, which is true. They do sort of double back on one another in interesting ways, and you don't always get the sense that he's making progress thinking through these things because he inevitably encounters the same question or contradictions or paradoxes and returns to the beginning. But Mm -hmm. also, if you actually look at the plot and what happens and you line up the soliloquies, he is making a kind of progress. So at the beginning, right, when the ghost appears, he doesn't know whether to trust it. He does not know whether to believe it or not. He senses that something is foul he senses that something is wrong, but that's why he goes to the trouble of hiring the players and staging the drama so he can observe Claudius's reaction. And so once he becomes more or less convinced of that, of, of Claudius's guilt, he comes across him in the chapel praying alone and more or less confessing to his crimes. And there it's actually a question almost of ethics and also efficacy of his revenge, where he's debating, is it right or not to seek his revenge in this way at this time? And he does sort of arrive at answers in a way about his specific dilemma, but it's long and winding, and it's not always clear when you're sort of in the middle of the forest the way you're going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, his getting out of it does not end well for Hamlet or most other people uh, on the stage, but he does arrive at answers, which is interesting. And it is kind of fascinating that he is presented with conundrums, not just about his own willingness to act and whether he can sort of overcome his own sort of reservations and melancholy, but literally the fact of what exactly happened. I think we read this play now, seeing the ghost as speaking truth from the outset and believe that Hamlet knows what's happened and takes it all at its word. But it's actually much more of a process in that sense. Like the plot actually does matter a little bit to how things uh, unfold, even though Hamlet seems to have all of these thoughts in a sort of pre-existing way. He certainly has the discomfort about his mother remarrying so quickly, which is the subject of much Freudian speculation. But even setting that aside, it's clear Hamlet has thought about some of this stuff, but he also needs to go on his own journey. And the journey is not just exterior, but also interior. And the two lining up feels very relevant today. Yeah, uh, well, I I think that's all true. Uh, You you also get at something there that I was particularly interested in talking about, which is, you know, the Freudian analysis of how Hamlet reacts to Gertrude's swift remarriage aside, I'm really interested in Hamlet's dilemma and Hamlet's situation as a portrait of mental illness in general, but I think in in particular as as a portrait of depression. And, you know, so you can tell me if if you disagree, but I I feel like basically through the first four or so acts, it feels to me like what we're observing is, yes, it's indecision, it's grappling with these questions, but it's also a portrait of a severely depressed person and the consequences that spin out from that. And I think you see that both in the way that other people react to Hamlet and the causes that they attempt to ascribe to what they perceive as his quote-unquote madness, Mm -hmm. and also in the way that Hamlet himself interacts with other people and views what's happening in the moment. So this is going to be a little bit of a digression, Mm -hmm. Will, but I promise this will loop back. So... At the end of Anna Karenina, which is a book that I think you probably know Mm -hmm. I'm a very big fan of, 
Anna Karenina's death sequence basically consists of her, she goes on a train and you're sort of in her head with Tolstoy and you're experiencing what she's experiencing and what she's experiencing as she's here, as she's on the train and sort of preparing to kill herself, though she, I don't think she even realizes that she's preparing to kill herself, is an experience of great pessimism and of great misanthropy. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what we see in Hamlet, particularly at the beginning, right? And mm-hmm. so, for instance, at the beginning, Hamlet is asked by Gertrude about why he's so melancholy and why he's behaving the way that he is. And she asks him, you know, it's common that everyone has to die. This this is what happens. He says to her, I, madam, it is common. She says, if it be, i.e. common, why seems it so particular with thee? Hamlet says, Seems, madam. Nay, it is. I know not seems. Tis not alone my inky cloak, good mother, together with all forms, modes, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. These indeed seem, for they are actions that a man might play. But I have that within which passes show. These but the trappings and the suits of woe. In other words, saying that like the way that he's behaving may appear to just be him like play acting and being sad, but actually it's springing from like a deep wellspring of grief mm-hmm. at the death of his father. And I think, you know, yes, I think that probably his mother's swift remarriage has caused some resentment in Hamlet. Mm-hmm. But I, it does seem to me that fundamentally what's happening underneath it is that he's like very deeply aggrieved yes. right, in himself. And he just needs to get through that. And I, I think over and over we see Hamlet behaving in like seemingly irrational ways. We see him being very cruel to Ophelia, but in a way that to me seems to reflect more of like a self-loathing and a skewed dark view of the world that arises from depression. And you see people who really don't understand what he's going through, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one one sign of depression is uh, like not being able to take pleasure in normally pleasurable activities, right? And he says to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern when they ask him about what's going on with him, he says, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, foregone all custom of exercises. The earth seems to me a sterile promontory, this most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave, blah, 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 blah. It appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. Mm -hmm. So I don't read this as Hamlet being mad in the way that I think he's often talked about as being mad. I think it is Hamlet being mad in the sense that the results of deep depression look like irrational behavior mm. to others. What, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I, I think one of the interesting aspects of it is uh, how all of the symptoms you can tick off. But I think one of the interesting things is no matter what environment Hamlet finds himself in, he continues to struggle with these feelings and these thoughts and that they actually, the appearance of madness, in some ways he might be exaggerating for effect. I mean, that's why he talks about having a quote-unquote antic disposition and adopting that to sort of smoke out the plot of Claudius. But you can see how it also, it's it's very self-fulfilling in a way. Because one, you know, it's, it's sort of delving into the murk of this depressive state and sort of the melancholy and not being able to snap himself out of it. And that's basically because depression follows him no matter where he goes and exacerbates and encourages some of these behaviors that he adopts for what he thinks are completely logical and rational reasons. So the line that I think of is uh, when he says, oh God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. Where he's essentially saying, he's talking to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are essentially saying, you can snap yourself out of this. There's not really that much that's um, constraining you. You know, you can get out of this. We can change up your environment. You can change up the people you're around. You can break free. And Hamlet is sort of reinforcing the idea that, well, no, I carry this with me. And it changes the way I view every situation in the world. You know, there are many situations in which you could put me, which would be putatively fine with me under other circumstances, but I can't get away from myself and from who I am at the end of the day, you know, these bad dreams that follow him. 
it's an interesting thing because I think for, you know, if you've ever dealt with somebody who is severely depressed uh, or been severely depressed yourself, you can understand and see how that can be true. And it's not just the, the Hamlet decrying his mother for the distinction between being and seeming. He really sees and feels very profoundly that these things are real. And sure, it takes on a costume and a kind of presentation and garb for the world that can seem ridiculous and irrational, but it seems deeply rational to him. So that's that's kind of a rather roundabout way of talking about this, but it's very, very interesting and I think very true to human psychology. Yeah, and he also, like one thing that's driving what he's experiencing and what he's feeling is a sense of being overly intellectual. Mm-hmm. Like he seems to feel like he should just be able to cry it out basically mm-hmm. and like feel all the feels and then things will go back Mm -hmm. to normal. And instead, what it seems to be is that he's almost like numb and that what he thinks are normal emotional reactions are inaccessible to him. Mm. And and again, I I think that is, you know, a somewhat profound observation on the part of Shakespeare that, you know, the way that these things manifest is often like not in the sort of shaking your fist at the heavens and weeping for three days and like being mm. sad and getting over it. It, it. it is a like a numbness to the world mm. and a disconnection from both yourself and from things that you value and from people that should be able to help you. Mm-hmm. And well, let me also say, I can tell you one thing that's not going to be helpful in this is Claudius basically being like, <laughs> you know what? It happens to everyone. You know, can't you just try not being depressed? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which was, you know, I just wanted to call it out because there is this incredibly, incredibly unhelpful speech from Claudius where he says, "'Tis sweet and commendable in your nature, Hamlet, to give these morning duties to your father. But you must know your father lost a father. That father lost, lost his and the survivor bound in filial obligation for some term to do obsequious sorrow. But to persevere in obstinate condolement is a course of impious stubbornness. Tis unmanly grief. So right. Claudius definitely not, uh, definitely not covering himself in glory in his efforts to perhaps help, but probably not really trying to help his... Yes. Well, and I think you can actually see this in both Claudius and Polonius and Gertrude's efforts to interpret what is making Hamlet behave the way he is behaving, particularly when they attribute his antic disposition to love, which is a very external... Uh, you know, th- their way their way of attributing this deep grief, which frankly shouldn't be a surprise to any of them, two months on from, or to some two months on from the death of Hamlet's father, they attribute it to his relationship with Ophelia, perhaps not going the way that he wants it to, which is a very, like, almost, almost a... I wouldn't necessarily say any of these people are especially healthy, quote unquote, but that's almost like a a more normal and well-adjusted person trying to pinpoint some external reason why he has this abiding sadness uh, and can't seem to shake out of it. And so they're trying to come up with a proximate cause for it when it's something that's actually much more profound and much deeper. And you see plenty of evidence for that in the depth, not just of like the death of his father, but considering mortality, the briefness of life, kind of the despair that he feels in multiple dimensions after his father dies. And they just attribute it to, oh, you know, Ophelia maybe things aren't going so well there you know maybe he's in love and is just behaving strangely and is like temporarily crazy that's probably it right you know there's something that's very like they're just missing the boat entirely uh on what is actually going on with this young man well that's interesting i I think you're right but you know i read it a little bit more as people like as them attempting to map onto what Hamlet is going through something that makes sense to them. Yeah, or that oh, they can, definitely. You know, that they can understand. Right? Definitely. Like, Polonius at some point says, it basically says, like, yeah, I went through, you know, I, I suffered for love when I was young. That must be what it is. Like, he's he's depressed because his relationship's not going well, 
to me, that stuff read a lot as like rationalization. Yeah. Oh, certainly. And it's no surprise that it comes from Polonius either, who is the king of cliches in a sense. Like his famous speech where he's giving advice to Laertes before Laertes runs off to France is really funny because people quote it all the time seriously or passages from it as if it's uh, serious advice. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. For loan off loses both itself and friend. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. And on one level it is, but it's all terribly overdone and cliched and doesn't really reflect any real understanding of mm-hmm. who his son is, which is why Polonius didn't mention this in the plot summary, but Polonius sends a spy to follow around Laertes in Paris to figure out what he's doing and try and challenge him. But Polonius has all of these lines that are, you know, that, that track with this sort of attribution of everything to just being heartsick because, you know, that's what young men go through. And, you know, and it's sad, but there are plenty of fish in the sea, you know, he'll get over it. It's very similar to him saying, neither a borrower nor a lender be, you know, where brevity is the soul of wit, be, be not expressed in fancy. Uh, you know, there's mm-hmm. lots of, there's lots of his little lines here where he's talking about money and just generally good advice, but um, but it's cliche delivered in a way right. that is extremely cliche, and it doesn't and understand the particulars of the pedantic. situation. It, it's a projection of what he thinks good advice should be, right. without any reference to the actual lives of the people that he's talking to. Yeah, circling back on the depression question, Will, and, and tying it, I think, to our first theme. Um, or our first topic, I I have to say, I also think that a lot of the questions that Hamlet is grappling with, you know, these questions of life and death, these questions about like what remains after we die and remembrance, you know, the capabilities of man versus the, shall we say, the inefficacy of man, you know, in the scope of the universe. All those things I feel like seem tied to this question of depression as mm-hmm. well. You know, I feel like a lot of what's happening is he's grappling with these questions because he is suffering in this way. And when you're suffering in that way, it's very difficult to avoid asking yourself Mm. those questions. Yeah. And so that I think is also an area where like the plot, the theme and the emotion of the play are all coinciding in a way that is really working. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I also know we should definitely talk about Ophelia who's, you know, own quote unquote madness. We see, you know, reflected and refracted in various ways at the end of the play as well. Because I think it's tied to kind of how damaging Hamlet's depression ends up being. And it's not to say that his depression is driving all of the bad events that happen in the play. It's obviously bigger than that. But there's something very interesting here about how Shakespeare looks at how the emotional states of these characters bounce off one another, and there's almost a contagion aspect to it. Uh, And, you know, this is, again, one of those sections that's quoted but not necessarily understood until you actually sit down with it. But the whole scene where Hamlet is contemplating his own mortality, to be or not to be, what immediately follows that is a really harrowing confrontation with Ophelia, which you get the sense sort of sets her on the track towards facing her own crisis in a way. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's really, we know at the end and we know it's brutal brutal. and we know at the end and we know even in certainly after she's dead where Hamlet says, you know, I loved her. And even in the scene where he says, I loved her or I loved you. And then uh, she essentially says, yes, I know. And then he says, I loved you not. She answers, I was the more deceived. Uh, There's clearly this aspect of Hamlet in going through this where he's kind of deranged from people that he otherwise had good and possibly healthy emotional connections to. Uh, and he's he's become alienated both from himself 
and from other people through that process. And he's sort of, he's pushing that out onto other people in really disturbing ways to the point of when he says, get thee to a nunnery, you know, nunnery was slang then, not just, it was not just a place where nuns live, but it was also slang for house of prostitution, a whorehouse. And all of his lines to Ophelia are just horribly derisive and sexually tinged in a way that, you know, really would have been cutting and, and devastating then as now. It's really hard stuff to read, actually. I found it to be pretty bracing. So this scene, first of all, I'm I'm really glad you brought up Ophelia, Will, because I, this character is not as active, I think, as some of the more recent heroines we've experienced. Mm-hmm. You know, she she definitely doesn't have the combative wit or personality of a Beatrice. Mm. Or like the or Rosalind sort of pluckiness, yeah, certainly, yeah, or or Rosalind sort of self actualization. Mm-hmm. You know, she she doesn't share that, and I think that's interesting about the character. And I feel like she ends up being the the most obvious example of the collateral damage mm-hmm. of the play, and of how this kind of mental illness that Hamlet is going through. See, it's it's so interesting with this one because I, f- I feel like you can spin it out in so many different ways, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there is she's definitely the victim of Hamlet's mental illness and depression. I, I think there's also a way you could look at the whole thing and wonder, you know, is this all spinning out from the original the original crime, perhaps, mm-hmm. of the murder of the king, right? And the fact that something's rotten in the state of Denmark and these people are all being victimized by that mm-hmm. in different ways by the, the butterfly effect of what sort of comes out of that mm-hmm. action. To, to the point of this moment and kind of the impression that we get of this character, I, I found Ophelia to be an incredibly sympathetic and just like good-hearted person. Yes. Reading the play, right? And, and so you get the sense that Laertes and Polonius both feel like she needs to be protected. And so they both have these discourses about how she shouldn't trust Hamlet and like how it's dangerous to her to kind of have this dalliance with him. Then you have that scene where she and Hamlet are interacting. And I mean, there's just some there's some really heartrending stuff in here in what I think is the simplicity of what she says. And I don't mean simplicity in like in yeah. a dumb way. I mean it in a like she's sort of stating what seem to be just facts. Very right? open. And it's very she's a very open hearted character. I mean, yes, there's no you know, artifice about her. At exactly. All. In some ways, you know, if you want to talk about seeming versus being in in both their ways right they are almost too much themselves hamlet and ophelia in this moment yeah yeah i mean she says well i mean first of all she says to i think it's to polonius she said my lord he hath importuned me with love in honorable fashion kind of suggesting that she really trusts him then when she sees him at the beginning of the scene that you're referencing she says i have remembrances of yours that i've longed long to redeliver i pray you now receive them Hamlet says, no, not I, I never give you aught. She responds, my honored Lord, you know right well you did. And with them, words of so sweet breath composed as made the things more rich. Their perfume loss, take these again for to the noble mind, rich gifts wax poor when givers prove unkind. Definitely a sense to me of, she's calling him out for basically lying to her, Mm. right? About a falsifiable fact. Yes. (laughs) Right. It's it's not like he's not it's not him saying I never loved you, although he does that later. It's I never gave you these things that I definitely gave you. (laughs) And then later on, as you said, you know, I did love you once. Her response, indeed, my Lord, you made me believe so. He says, I loved you not. I was the more deceived. She's. She's being very open about her her feelings and about what she's going through, as, as you said. What's interesting to me about this scene Hamlet is completely brutal, and yet, and I don't want to say this to excuse what Hamlet's Mm -hmm. doing or saying, to be clear, but it's difficult for me to read this scene and not read it in a sense of, this scene is an expression of Hamlet's complete (laughs) self-loathing. Because sort you know, mixed in with this stuff about, you know, he says, get thee to an honor, why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? Mm -hmm. I am myself indifferent honest. Yet I could accuse me of such things, but would better my mother had not borne me. I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious, with more offenses at my back than I thought to put them in. What should fellows such as I do, crawling between earth and heaven? We are errant knaves, all believe none of us. Like, the messaging isn't just you're a 
don't know, a, a sexually profligate person, you should go to a whorehouse, right? It's you would be better off going to a whorehouse or going to a nunnery than you would be being in a relationship with me because right. I'm so horrible. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I mean, it's it's hard stuff to read uh, for sure because it's very raw in a way that this play can be airy and philosophical at times, but it's also, even at those times, one, there's always a layer of emotion underneath. But in this moment in particular, it's all being stripped away to this base layer and it's very ugly and very powerful to actually see depicted i mean i think even in some of the other plays that we have read shakespeare doesn't get to this level of raw primal emotion in quite yeah. the same direct route and in just sort of leaving these characters exposed in this way i guess the the other thing here i, I mean hamlet as a character you know, you're raising this as self-loathing on the one hand he's tremendously um articulate and sympathetic and interesting character. I mean, he gets more lines than anybody, almost without question. I think he gets probably the most lines of any character in Shakespeare, including Richard III, which is another extremely long play with a a central figure. And it's impossible not to have really complex feelings about Hamlet as somebody who is both indisputably brilliant and funny and interesting and passionate and who is also partially because of his depression and self-loathing, you know, in, in perhaps largely in response to that, we don't exactly know what he was like before all of these events transpired, but he's also a very loathsome figure, even from the outside with the way he behaves in these I, moments. You I know? think we do get a little bit of, of hints of the, the pre-Hamlet or, or, or yeah. Hamlet from before this episode, right? I think in particular in his relationship with Horatio, mm-hmm. you know, you see a little bit of that kind of affection and ribbing of each other and stuff like that. Like you can sort of see a little bit behind the mask, but I agree with you in general, you have no real idea. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just hints. The, yeah. The truth, the truth is probably some of these things, you know, some of the aspects of his personality that are being expressed now probably existed before, right? It's not all an expression to external events. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we know that that was not all of who he was or all of who he is either. I mean, there's many moments where he has great, great laugh lines in this play, which is very dark and serious for the most part, but has lots of gags, lots of humorous scenes. And, and then you also just come face to face with Hamlet's self-loathing turned towards hatred towards other people because that's the only way he feels like he is able to be. And turning it on poor Ophelia is just sort of the natural sense of uh, he would never want to be part of a club that would take somebody like him for a member. He'd never want to be in a relationship with somebody who would consider him a desirable person at this stage. And that's a pretty bleak and and sad thought. But I also think something that if you think of of various people in your life, uh, you know, or or maybe, you know, among the the listeners of the pod, maybe that's a way that some of us or, or some of you have felt from time to time. And that's very interesting in, in and of itself that Shakespeare's able to access that in a way that is not going to come through in a play like Romeo and Juliet. He doesn't get to that penetrating level of self-knowledge that Hamlet reveals to us and then that spills out over the course of the rest of the play over everyone else in it. Yeah, and the effect with Ophelia, I think, is to be the strongest exemplar of the costs of that, mm-hmm. right? She is the sort of the most innocent and most harmed simultaneously in the whole play by the goings-on at Elsinore. Mm -hmm. So, Will, before we go, look, I feel like we've only just scratched the surface on... Even as we've been talking, I feel like there's so many different directions we could go in with this one and other stuff that would be interesting to discuss. Unfortunately... But fortunately for our listeners, we can't do a three-hour-long Hamlet podcast. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. But I I did want to just ask you before we go, obviously, as we've talked about, this play has some of the most famous speeches and lines, not just in Shakespeare, but in Mm -hmm. all of English literature. Do you have anything that you want to call out that we haven't talked about? 
or something that you particularly enjoy or, or just a favorite passage? Oh, man. Well, I, I've talked about just sort of one of my favorite couplets, which is the uh, there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how, they, how we will. And obviously to be or not to be is amazing in its own right. I think of actually the speech that begins, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave I am. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I? Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing. For Hecuba, what's Hecuba to him? Or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her. What would he do had he the motive and cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech. Make mad the guilty and appall the free. Confound the ignorant and amaze, indeed, the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I... A dull and muddy-metalled rascal peak like John of Dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing, no? Not for a king upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? In that passage, I find one beautifully written, extremely powerful, and also really forces you face-to-face with Hamlet's darkest assessment of himself and his own nature. I think that that's pretty powerful, and it also is sort of leading him towards trying to figure out who killed his father. So there's a whole instrumentality of the plot, but there's also his psychology being layered on top of one another, and I find that to be one of the ones I quite like. What about you? I face a similar dilemma of choosing between all the various and very insightful speeches here. I I think one thing we didn't talk about at all that I definitely would call out, and I don't know if it's my absolute favorite, but it's definitely up there, is the extended, it's a little bit of a dialogue, but the the gravedigger scene, the very famous gravedigger scene. You know, last poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, where it's the famous image of Hamlet speaking to the skull. And he's just learned that this skull belonged to someone that he knew who was the king's jester. Alas. Poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times. And now, how abhorred in my imagination it is. My gorge rises at it. Here hung those lips that I have kissed I know not how oft. Where be your jibes now? Your gambols, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar. Not one now to mock your own grinning, quite chop-fallen. Now get you to my lady's chamber. Tell her, let her paint an inch thick. To this favor she must come. Make her laugh at that. Pretty Orisha, tell me one thing. What's that, my lord? Dost thou think Alexander looked at this fashion of the earth? Once, sir. And smelt so. <laughs> and so, my lord. To what base uses we may return, Horatio. I may not imagination trace the noble dust of Alexander till I find it stopping a bunghole. To to consider too curiously to consider so. No, faith, not a jot, but to follow him thither with modesty enough and likelihood to lead it as thus. Alexander died, Alexander was buried, Alexander returneth to dust, the dust is earth. Of earth we make loam, and why of that loam, whereto he was converted, might they not stop a beer barrel? Imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay, might stop a hole to keep the wind away. Oh, that that earth which kept the world in awe.
should patch a wall to expel the winter's flaw. It leads into this long discourse, not just about remembering this man who was significant in his life as a child, but also about the fact that we're all going to the same place in death. Mm -hmm. And then he moves into a into a reflection on the fact that what has happened to Yorick also happened to Alexander the Great yes. and to Caesar yeah. and how they have turned to dust. And I, I love that scene because I think it communicates both, you know, both real emotion mm-hmm. and anguish and sort of observation of like the great heights we may reach in life and also recognition and grappling with the recognition of the fact that then it all ends. It all comes, it all comes maybe not, maybe to, I mean, he's feeling that it comes to not, but um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, there's even in that passage, he describes how worms feed on the dead, fish feed on the worms, and people feed on the fish, and you just sort of return to, uh, yeah. if I may be so bold as to quote a Hamlet-inspired Disney film, The Lion King. It's all about the circle of life, James. That's right. That's right. But, but this is reminding me, and this is actually probably my favorite piece of just pure poetry based on the, the reference to dust that you just made. And I love this section. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. And yet, to me, what is this? Quintessence of dust. Man delights not me. It's a wonderful speech, both because it captures these themes and distills them in an increasingly potent form. Rather than being discursive, you're getting the sense of Hamlet supercharging his observations in a way that are probably going over Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's heads a bit there, but it's a really powerful distillation of Hamlet's frustrations and confrontation with his own mortality, the question of life and whether it's worth living, the beauty of the world, the pain of existence. It's all happening in the speech, and I I think it yields some very evocative language that has certainly stuck with me and that I occasionally return to just in everyday life, not because I'm thinking about those themes all the time, but because they they stick in your mind. This one is also interesting to me because I I feel like there's a way that the speech is talked about where I feel like I've heard many people refer to this speech as being ironic in the past or like, or Hamlet's not serious. And actually I feel like the more powerful version of the speech is where he's entirely serious. And it's about this contradiction between the great faculties that he's talking about and his reaction to, you know, his inability to appreciate them, sort of. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. No, but. no, I think I think it does. I, I I read it as it's slightly bitter, it's witty, it's reckoning with more the irony of opposites rather than him not being serious. It's more him observing sort of the, the contradictions of the beauty of the world and his inability to feel it in that way in some respect, if that makes sense. It's the sort of contradiction between feeling like there's uh, this beautiful world that's created that has all of these majestic qualities and realizing also that's ephemerality in a way. So I think he's actually quite serious based on the Alexander the Great conversation that he has later on in the play, for sure. Agreed. So, James, loaded question, but... Where do you rank this one, and who is your MVP? Oh, boy. Uh, so, well, Will, I think it's really, really difficult to not put it number one. I, I was thinking about it. I was reading it. If I, I still I still really like Henry IV, part one. I still really like Henry V. I still really like Julius Caesar. I just think... 
to not put Hamlet number one would sort of be deliberately contrarian, and there's not really good reason not to do it. There's just so much profound stuff in this play, so much great poetry, and just a, a real immensity of theme, I, I think. So to me, it's number one, and, and Hamlet's the MVP. And even if I, I might have maybe enjoyed Henry the Fourth one more as a read and as a plot, but I, I just, I don't think you can really say it's anything but Hamlet, at least for the plays we've read so far. So are you going to surprise me and disagree, or um, are you on the same page? I agree. This one tops the list. Uh, I'm curious to see how it will stack up against some of the other heavy hitters, most notably Macbeth, but I've always loved this one. Uh, there was almost no question that it was going to get to the top. I don't know that it's, it, because it stands so tall among the plays, I can't necessarily say that it's the one I enjoyed reading the most or rereading the most, as the case may be. I don't think I had actually read this one since maybe I was 18 or 19, so it definitely is a, a change to come back to it, but it's still just as potent and powerful and great, even if the experience of reading Julius Caesar or Henry V, or even some of the, the ones that are less majestic, like some of the Henry VI plays that were enjoyable, those are all really excellent plays in their own right, uh, enjoyable to read, but Hamlet, I think, stands head and shoulders above the rest at the moment. And the MVP has to be Hamlet. There's just not really um, much room for for alternatives there. There is no alternative. In fact, Hamlet is number one. Uh, Will, before we go, do you have anything you've been reading or watching that you would like to recommend for our listeners? I do, James. So I have been... Looking for a slightly more lighthearted show that is also good drama, but has a lot of laugh lines and is extremely amusing in its own way. And so I returned to Showtime recently and I watched Billions, starring Damian Lewis, Paul Giamatti, and uh, Wendy Siff, with many other secondary players who were excellent. And Billions is the story of a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and a hedge fund billionaire who's fast and loose with the law and the rules, played by Damian Lewis, and um, the wife of the U.S. attorney, who's Paul Giamatti, is uh, basically the, the head of human resources and the lead performance coach and psychiatrist for the hedge fund. And it's all about their respective power struggles. And there are lots of great cameos and characters, and it's a reminder of New York in its Gilded Age form over the past decade, but also just the absurdity of the, the moments we live in. And it's, it's very, very funny and very enjoyable. It's just kind of like fun and outrageous stuff happens every episode. There's enough drama that you're into it, but you also will laugh a lot. So I, I heartily recommend it. Give us the recommendation one more time, Will. That is Billions on Showtime. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, a breezy palate cleanser with a hopefully less depressing Twelfth Night. Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends or give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com. 